Welcome to another episode of Big Shiny Takes. I am your co-host, Jeremy, and joining me as always are my new pals, Eric and Marino. Hello. (laughs) So creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like Gian Gomeshi like. Oh no, don't do that to me. <laughs> I'm off the pod. <laughs> you just did yeah. eyebrows. I don't know. It scared me a little bit. Well, my no, fault. speaking of off the pod, uh today we were going to talk about uh Hunter Biden's emails, <laughs> but my co-host uh silenced me by suggesting another topic for the episode. So I am quitting this podcast and starting a substack. <laughs> it's actually, that's called pulling a Greenwald now. Yeah. And I, of course, I am joking. But if you want to hear us talk about Glenn Greenwald's little temper tantrum and how sad and disappointing I find it, uh, you will have to pony up a few bucks to uh, listen to our bonus episode. But um, on to uh, what we're actually talking about today. We've brought along a very special guest. Um, You may know her as a professor at Mount Royal uh, University in Calgary. She's also a uh, member of a small up-and-coming podcast you may have heard of (laughs) called The Alberta Advantage. And she's also an author. She's writing a book and uh, has edited one uh, about the history of the NDP called The Party of Conscience, which is excellent, and you should read it. Roberta, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for that introduction. (laughs) That was was very nice. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, I was kind of spitballing, but it it worked. I loved how you tried to Frenchify the Montréal instead of Mount Royal. (laughs) Did did I do that? It sounded like you were about to go French on it. Oh, cool. Well, that That's wasn't awesome. my intention. Own it. Anyways, how's it going, Roberto? Uh, it's going well, you know. I'm living the, the grand, exciting life of a pandemic and in hell, literal hell. So, you know, how are you guys? Oh, you know, it's uh, it's the same over here. <laughs> um, um, time has uh, blended every single day together, and uh, I can't believe it's already March. <laughs> yeah, uh, 2024, right? Well, 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 just to be clear, my co-hosts live in Toronto, so in Toronto it is actually March, right? The, yeah, daylight savings time and all the that, time yeah. zone. No yeah. wonder I have such a hard time getting the days and times right when I meet with people out there. What the hell? Now I get it. <laughs> but but serious question was: Is daylight savings time today? Yeah. It is. Oh, okay. That's why I was late to. That's why. No, 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 no. It'll be the midnight tonight or 2 a.m. or whatever. You can't oh, use it as an excuse. Sorry, Jeremy. No excuse, Jeremy. Sorry. <laughs> no, see, I, I thought it was daylight savings time, which is why I was yeah. Anyways, we're, uh, we're here to talk about uh, this lovely province uh, Roberta and I reside in and a certain political columnist that is associated with a certain political party in that she's a member of <laughs> and um, we've spoken about it in our past episode way back when we first started with dear friend of the show, uh, Lane Pauls. And that is Alicia Corbella, who is a columnist at the Calgary Herald. Like, I just to, before we, we go into it, I mean, 
I don't think there's any problem with journalists having certain ideas politically, but to be part of a political party and not disclose that at the bottom of every single column you write it seems a little misleading or at least intellectually dishonest. Yeah, I don't have a problem even with journalists being members of political parties. I think we're citizens. Yeah. And we're, at least a lot of us, are better informed than um, the rest of the population. And I, I find it really annoying, this, this mentality among some journalists that we're not allowed to have opinions or emotions and just we need to just get the straight facts as if such a thing exists and listen to but both sides it's all, because both sides are always yeah. virtuous and uh, <laughs> valid. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But, but, yeah. but it is a bit different when you are a member of a political party supporting a particular candidate in that party's race and writing agate prop for them in a major newspaper. That's different. And now, if I recall correctly, Roberta, there were a few columns that Post Media pulled of Corbella's when news came out that she was an UCP member. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what happened there, but I have the sense now, thinking back, that they had some articles that they pulled off their web page, I think, that they stopped linking to. Like, they'd already been published, but um, but they pulled them. And I had a sense that maybe she was going to disappear from our lives for a while, which, which was very enjoyable for about a 30-second break. Um, but then somehow came back and still never put the acknowledgement at the bottom of her column because again like I agree with you guys like I think journalists should be citizens members of political parties engaged in political action should be doing the work but and can still be objective in whatever sense that that actually means but I think if you're going to tout a particular political perspective you need to acknowledge that you have a connection to that that political perspective. So, you know, if you're espousing the stupid Fraser Institute's tax garbage, I want you to tell me at the bottom of your article that you are a member of the Fraser Institute and give them money and support the political parties that they are focused on electing. I would like to know that. Although I also would assume anybody writing for Post Media probably is those things. So, I don't know. What do you do about all this? Yeah. Do we really need to say that about her? Didn't we all just assume she was a UCP here? Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's complicated. Right. But, but the interesting thing about Corbella is she has a bit of a contrarian streak, right? Like, most of the time, it's like 100% UCP line, as we'll read in our first piece today. But sometimes she goes a bit rogue. Have you noticed that? Like, with regards to... Um, the COVID outbreaks at the uh, meat pa- packing facilities in High River and Brooks earlier this year. She was holding the government to account on that, like probably better than anyone else in the province. And I just wonder what's going on there. Like, is it, 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 is it just like a branding exercise on her part where she's this UCP show most of the time, but then sometimes she'll say, you know, from like, at least ostensibly from uh, a good place that here's here's what I think they're doing wrong. 
or like Roberta, what do you, what do you think is going on? There? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question when a journalist or columnist who normally has a particular perspective suddenly seems to diverge from that. Uh, Rick Bell did it this week around the Wildcat strikes, for instance. It was a little bit of a shocker, but then also he does that sometimes. So it's always unclear what's happening. But I think. With Corbella and the meatpacking plants, I think there's actually a really easy explanation for that one. And what I think it is, is that she supports an ideological perspective, or her ideological perspective would be one where corporations are sort of seen as the guardians of us all, right? They, they're they like the old monarchs back in the day where the queen or king was responsible for protecting the well-being of, of the butyls, you know, the peasants on the ground. And I think she has a similar perspective that corporations should be in charge of the world. They should run everything, but they should do so in a way that actually is good for people. Not good in the sense that we would pay them a living wage or, you know, <laughs> help them survive into their old age and have, have retirement savings. Not, not that kind of thing, but, but have them protected from kind of the worst excesses of our society. <laughs> so for me, I think the meatpacking instance is an example of where corporations, represented in this case by the UCP and Jason Kenney, really failed in that responsibility, they let their workers down. Um, now, again, she wouldn't support paying them more or giving them citizenship as foreign workers or you know any of the things I think they might want to do. But I think from her own strange ideological perspective, it actually kind of makes sense as this kind of protector. Do you, do you guys agree? Do you think I, that, that I holds think any water or am I making up I, no, some I, crazy shit? I love that. It's like a benevolent Amazon doesn't kill its employees. On purpose. Right, exactly. On purpose, yeah. I mean, they might die, and we're not going to pay them well. That's just not. But we'll we'll make sure they don't get COVID in mass numbers anyway. Yeah, and I very, I, I, yeah, I very much appreciate that um, sort of analogy uh, you make with like, you know, landowners and serfs, right? That these workers are, they're slaves. Like serfs are, we should be good to them, right? And I could definitely see uh, Alicia Corbella writing in the United States in you know the mid nineteenth uh, century, being like, "Slavery is great. We need it. This is how our economy runs." Robber barons are getting a bad rap. Yeah, but don't totally. abuse your slaves, right? <laughs> don't rip off people if you're a robber baron, right? And uh, I hadn't thought of it that way, and. Uh, yeah, I think you put it quite well, Roberto. But um, to turn us to today's piece uh, by uh, Miss Corbella, which is not in that vein, we're talking about wildcat strikes, of course. That was the big news coming out of Alberta uh, this past week on Monday. It's unclear exactly how many, but a hell of a lot of healthcare workers, both support workers, like, uh, you know, people doing laundry and quarters and uh, food service workers, but also nurses and health, other health aides walked off the job to protest the Alberta government's vicious assault on the public healthcare system in the midst of a pandemic. And Corbella 
wasn't too pleased about this. And, and, and as, <laughs> as, as listeners will notice, that there's a trend with all these, you know, reactionary, murky columnists that everything they write is ultimately about. <laughs> and their heady personal gripes. This this piece is is like especially odious because on one hand, it's health workers demanding better treatment from the provincial government, and the other hand is Leisha Corbella's elective knee surgery. And, and, and you, like you watch Alicia weigh them both and decide that actually no, her knee is more important, which is a uh, really telling. But yeah, I think it's also uh, worth saying the context. I mentioned this assault on the public health care system in the midst of the pandemic. There are myriad examples of it from uh, picking fights with doctors, um, to just generally, even before the pandemic, just completely uh, putting collective agreements with public sector unions into the shredder. Um, but in this case, really, the real catalyst was the health ministry's announcement last week that they're laying off 11,000 support staff with about 800 or so nurses and other frontline workers positions being eliminated through attrition. This was a step down from what was leaked to the CBC earlier, a memo from July, which I'll link to the CBC piece in the show notes because it was very good, very thorough, very ominous, the, the, the types of things they say about this plan. The, the original plan was even worse. The original plan was like upwards of like 17,000 healthcare employees they wanted to lay off this year, including nurses, and healthcare aides and other frontline workers. So that got leaked to the CBC. CBC called up the health minister's office for comment on this. And Steve Buick, the spokesperson for uh, health minister Tyler Shandro, who, you know, <laughs> for being a complete loose cannon, was like, yeah, yeah, we'll get back to you. Don't worry, we'll get back to you later today. And then subsequently leaked their official plans to post media, their friends at post media, though the reporter who reported on it, who I think listens to our show, uh, Lauren Boothby is a good reporter and, you know, they didn't specifically meet her. Um, but she, she ended up reporting on it. It was, you know, it was a step down from the original plans they detailed in July, but it's like nurses know that they're next on the chopping block. Like, and that's why they participated in this strike. Now, I think that's uh, more than enough background info. So, uh, Leisha Corbella was not too thrilled, not with the decision to decimate our public health care system, but how it mildly inconvenienced her. Now, Roberta, uh, we'd like to offer our guests the opportunity to actually read this story. Um, oh, would, how would, you do, would you do the honors? Well, sure. Um, and can I ask you guys before I do, as as journalists, you're taught to to personalize these stories, right? Like I notice every newspaper article always starts with like, you know, Joe Black on X Street saw such and such the other day. And then you tell me the actual real stuff about like real life, right? Like that's what you're taught to do, right? Personalize things, give a hook. Like in an yeah. opinion, in an opinion article, I, I think, yeah. 
especially when you're uh, a hack, I think it's it's very easy to use like uh, a regular schmo as like a as a vehicle to prove your point right. because it's like it's not it's not about me. It's about it's about Richard who has to you know walk seventeen dogs and all he really wants to do is have a beer and watch hockey. Exactly. And so that's what I thought was kind of happening here, except that she uses herself. So um, right, she couldn't exactly. even find Joe Schmo she, on the street. She to is have so her, shameless. So. It, yeah. Oh, and, no. and, and, and I get with like an opinion column that it is about your perceptions and maybe even your experiences. But there is a way to go about that where you don't come off as completely self-absorbed. Well, and it's also actually listed as a local news story, not as a <laughs> opinion piece. <laughs> so that might say something also. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's local news. This is news not an editorial. Yeah. yeah, this isn't an editorial article. That's a broader trend in post media usage. Yeah. As they lay off their good reporters who then have to get jobs and, you know, communications. Um, like, I think James Wood was a good reporter at the Calgary Herald. He now works for, I think he works for Alberta Health Services now. can insult Leisha Corbella for her, her attempts to garner sympathy with this column. But really, I was for the Wildcat Strikes, and then I read this column, and I, I heard about her surgery uh, <laughs> being slightly delayed, and you know what? Now I'm against them, so, so there you go, right? <laughs> She's effective, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the NDP wants to win, <laughs> um, they're, they're gonna have to. They they have to get people like Leisha Corbell. <laughs> I uh, yeah, she really cuts a sympathetic figure for herself in this this piece, and it's not at she all sure embarrassing. Does. All right, Roberta, take it okay. away. Um, okay, so Corbella, Wildcat Strike Costs Me My Knee Surgery and Little Sympathy for Workers. That title doesn't even make sense. I'm sorry, but the grammar doesn't work there. Okay. Wait, yeah, so it only costs her a little sympathy for workers? Well, yeah, like it doesn't make sense. The Wildcat Strike Costs Me Little Sympathy for Workers. Like that's how that reads to me. Mm-hmm. Then like that doesn't make any sense. Anyway, whatever. It's, it's, it's a bad headline. You can fix that title. I it is yeah. a very bad headline. And Marino writes headlines for a living. Uh, oh, good. Until for the next few days. Cost is modifying <laughs> little sympathy. It's Yeah, it, it doesn't work. I don't like it. Okay. All right. Okay, so all of you listening to this, this is not me saying any of this, but it is all in first person. So no, this is Roberta. <laughs> this is actually, we brought Roberta on because... Um, I wrote this awful piece, yeah. yes. Yeah, well, no, she is going to tell us why she left the left. Right, right, right. <laughs> you heard it here first. Wow. Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll, link, we'll link to your substack. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> okay. I was just getting ready to drive to Peter Lougheed Hospital Monday, crutches in hand, when I got the dreaded call. My long-awaited knee surgery was canceled because of the wildcat strike by the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees on Monday. I felt quite deflated. I had mentally prepared, psyched myself up, if you will, to deal with the pain and discomfort of surgery on my right knee in the short term in order to walk and function pain-free in the long term. Oh, well, at least I could now drink a cup of coffee and eat some lunch. (laughs) Silver (laughs) So instead of heading to the hospital for surgery, I headed there to talk to those who caused 157 Albertans, including me, to have their non-emergency surgeries postponed Monday as a result of their illegal strike action. 
I like, a lot packed into there that I yeah, can pull let's, let's unpack that a little. Um, Who caused 157 Albertans to have... Anyway, there's the first Also, the, uh, 157 Albertans is a lot less um, than the amount of... 11,000, yeah. ...who are losing yeah. their jobs. And for Christ's sakes, you say it's a non-emergency surgery. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know. Fucking wait a bit. I get it. You're probably grumpy because you... She was probably not allowed to eat for 24 hours. However, <laughs> it was an elective surgery for her knee. Like, she's not a professional athlete. She's not depending on it for her livelihood. Well, and for her to, to dismiss it all and just be like, oh, well, I can get coffee and a lunch now. Like, oh, well, 11,000 of you are about to get fired and not be able to pay your mortgage. But at least I can eat my lunch now. Like, it's just so dismissive. The tone of it the, just The fact yeah. that she was even allowed to have surgery prior to the wildcat strikes happening is kind of shocking to me because the surges in covid cases but like i i'm trying to get into uh into the hospital for a bunch of follow-ups i broke my neck in november and it was it was a lengthy process and then covid happened and i was supposed to have follow-ups in march which got pushed back until November and, and I mean some doctors haven't called me back at all and I'm just dealing with it and not blaming striking workers for it it's it's amazing how easy it is to not blame people for that um and Ill so, illegally striking illegally workers. striking workers yeah which which to be fair I mean it was an illegal strike but yeah but like who gives a I'm, shit yeah yeah it's like well, and also, we now live in a province where every strike is illegal, basically. So, like, for somebody to tell me strike action is illegal basically tells me that yeah. they don't support workers because mm -hmm. they're, it would be very difficult right now in Alberta to have a strike that was legal, um, at least within the UCP's definition of such a thing. And so, to call it an illegal strike action may be factual, but it also is very much ignoring the context within which labor action can happen in this province and elsewhere in the country. So in that also. context, like they're just trying to say like illegal is bad, but it is like there's no other option. Like what are you going to do? Right, exactly. It's just like using that language. Like I headed there to talk to those workers who <laughs> caused 107, 157 Albertans to have their surgery decline. Like by using the word caused, you're making it clear that the only people to blame here are those uh, striking workers who are illegally striking. Let's make sure we say that again <laughs> in here. But cause is a really big question here. Um, and she just flips it out there as if it's there's no question about who's to blame for her surgery being being postponed. Do you think it being a legal strike? quote-unquote, um, <laughs> would have changed her position. She was like, oh, okay, well, their contract was up, so I, no, of course not, because she's a, she's a hack. Well, I'm also shocked that her surgery yeah. wasn't postponed already, because as Eric said, you know, we have COVID issues, and AHS, Alberta Health Services, just announced the postponement and cancellation of a whole bunch of non-emergency surgeries last week, just before this happened. Um, and so... I mean, I'm not going to go and fact check this article in the sense of calling and seeing if she had a surgery scheduled for that day. But it surprises me that it wasn't already postponed because my sense is, is that it was not the strike. There are many other factors playing into the cancellation yeah. of this yeah. surgery. I, um, I, I think someone from the Calgary Herald uh, should do that. <laughs> 
if, if you're check. listening. But as we know, fact-checking is censorship. Um, so I understand it. But one last thing before we continue. I, I, I just like the line about her getting psyched up for her non-elective knee surgery. Like, I just picture her, like, in a hoodie, like, listening to Lose Yourself by Evan M. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just... It's like Rocky yeah, yeah. memes or yeah, something. Yeah, I have the tiger. Just, like, she's amped and ready to go. Can I tell you, like, a surgery story? Like... Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, context. I had a unstable neck fracture, which is one of those those fractures that, you know, if you you slip and fall or, you know... It's too windy. <laughs> Your spinal cord is uh, at risk of being punctured by the fracture. Um, so I was pretty high up on the uh, the triage list. I think I was like like uh, the second off the top. It was it was like it was an emergency, but it was like okay, you're gonna have to do this if you want to like live. So I had to wait 26 hours for that surgery, and I I sat in a hospital bed. I was I tried to psych myself up for about half an hour, and then you know half an hour went by i'm like I, I i'm ready i'm ready in every six hours or so they give you ice chips because you're not allowed eating food and i i napped and then i remember them trying to explain the surgery to me and i'm like just please just do it <laughs> like let's go and i woke up and i was more psyched up about it afterwards um there's nothing to psych yourself up with for surgery it's just it's more like dealing with nerves if you're scared of the doctors yeah, like, no offense to Alicia Carbell, and I know everyone handles, like, medical procedures differently, <laughs> but personally, I'd probably be a little bit more anxious about being a healthcare worker in Alberta or striking in Alberta than a, a non-emergency knee surgery. But that's just me. To be honest, I'd be more scared of walking into the hospital and getting COVID mm. right now than about this fear <laughs> of my knee yeah, surgery. Yeah, or, or crossing a picket yeah. scab. Yeah. Well, that too. I mean, I do want to acknowledge that our surgical system in this country is largely broken. We do mm-hmm. have long wait lists. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an important thing to talk about. I also think our healthcare system is backwards in the sense that we expect it to be able to handle everything instead of looking at it as a, a an emergency response instead of preventative. Um, and that most of these elective knee surgeries and others are not really that important. That, you know, Corbella is going to be just fine. She might have have to limp a little bit, but and she might be in a bit of pain. I get it. We all are. Um, but the people who really, really need surgery are going to yeah. get it right now mm-hmm. when they need it. And that's what our system is good for. We've just tried to make it do too much. So I do want to acknowledge, like, I'm, I'm not think, saying that, you know, all these lineups and wait lists are great, um, but this isn't the response to that. This is a good time to mention that we are now going to divert our Patreon to amputate Corbella's leg and replacing it with a bicycle wheel. Um, so if you believe in this cause, <laughs> please uh, subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, <laughs> Roberta, you want to get us into the next graph? Can I get in on that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so where were we? Oh, illegal strike action, right. Okay. Um, according to an Alberta Health Services spokesperson, to put this in context, about 1,000 surgeries are performed daily by AHS. So 15.7% of surgeries were affected but 84% still proceeded as usual. Hmm. Sigh. <laughs> Most of those cancellations, 131, took place in Edmonton. Calgary had 21 cancellations, including mine, and Lethbridge had five. 
The types of pursuit. Me, 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 me. me. Yeah, me, me, me. It gets even better here, though. The me is even better in this next paragraph. The types of procedures canceled were hysteroscopy, fallopian tube removal, gallbladder removal, ACL reconstruction, knee and shoulder scopes, septoplasty, hip and knee arthroplasty, that's me, <laughs> jaw surgery, and vein stripping cases. I just love how, how she has many? to acknowledge which one was her in that list. And then how many, how many of these surgeries are getting privatized uh, by the UCP? That's an excellent question. Most of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, because they're what the government deems non-essential which is essentially it costs too much and uh, there's money to be made by our friends in the private sector. Well, I bet Corbella would have been happy to pay $5 billion that day for her surgery. <laughs> well, that's what we've got our Patreon going well, that, towards. That's why they, that's why they uh, pair the big bucks at Post Media. Absolutely. Yeah. I love this next graph because it's, it's like, this should just be the end. That The first sentence should just be it. Personally, I'm not in terrible pain or anything. Period. <laughs> period end of column sadly it's not the end of the column Uh Um, but some of these procedures are diagnostic in nature and their cancellation could prevent an early diagnosis of cancer which is really terrible (laughs) god this is like a 11th grade essay this is really terrible (laughs) it's it's, cancer is bad i will say it's factually true but it's kind of besides the point at that point (laughs) I don't think she had to say that. That it's really <laughs> yes, terrible. The pro cancer yeah, lobby guys, is like guys, guys, hating this Guys, let's be call. fair here. Where, where's the lie? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the strike is being held to support unionized workers whose jobs are at risk because of the United Conservative government's plans to privatize hospital laundry services and laboratory services and other non-medical roles. No frontline healthcare workers will be affected. There's also a lot to unpack there. What is a frontline healthcare worker? Because I would argue somebody who cleans all the crap off of our mm. gross, disgusting, germ-filled clothes would be a frontline worker. Yeah. Yeah. And also, uh, frontline workers are obviously the next on the chopping block, considering that the government wanted to uh, fire a bunch of them now, but back down when the public got wind of that fact. And still 800 uh, nurses and healthcare aides and other like um, positions that are commonly assumed to be frontline in the public imagination are getting eliminated through attrition, which is a cut. Well, and I also love how they, they claim these jobs are non-essential and non-frontline until they go on strike and then suddenly we can't survive without them. Like, mm. it's such the mm. hypocritical position, like, oh, these laundry workers don't matter. Like, whatever. We, we don't need them. They're not essential. Government doesn't have to pay them. They don't need good wages and unions and all those things. But, oh, my God, don't you dare not work. Like, holy shit, the whole thing's going to fall apart and Corbella can't get her knee surgery and the world's coming to an end all because of these apparently non-essential, non-frontline workers mm-hmm. are on strike. Like, pick a side. Which one is it? Is Are they essential or are they not essential? Okay, so we all feel compassion for, the pe- for people who lose their jobs. Do we? It's unsettling and upsetting. Just ask all those oil and gas, restaurant, and retail workers who have lost theirs. <laughs> so now they're on the same level as oil and gas, restaurant, and retail workers, but apparently not. And I'd also question whether some people do feel compassion for people 
others who have lost their jobs because that's <laughs> not the rhetoric I'm hearing. Yeah, especially in the political party that she is a member, member of. Yeah. Oh my God. While talking to Danny Pavez, a unit clerk in the intensive care unit at Peter Lougheed Hospital and one of the approximately 50 picketers at the site in the afternoon, she pointed out a large K-Bro linen systems truck that was driving away from the hospital after having delivered fresh laundry. Okay, so currently 68% of hospital laundry is contracted out. And despite the weeping and gnashing of teeth that occurred back when that took place, the sky never fell and filthy bedsheets didn't descend upon our hospitals either, as was absurdly predicted by union reps back then. The laundry got cleaned well and safely. Well, thank God the laundry is clean. Who gives a shit about those workers and their conditions? Well, no kidding. Like, can we actually talk about this differently? How many of those workers lost benefits and lost salary and had trouble making their mortgage? Like, yeah, the laundry got cleaned, but did human beings survive okay through that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, it's so Yeah, and, and, but also, like... The laundry got cleaned, like, great, but were there still shit stains on it after it was cleaned? <laughs> you know you know what I mean? Like, like it's, you know, there's this assumption that the private sector is, like, inherently more efficient than the public sector. And in some cases, that may be true, right? I mean, it really depends on a case-to-case basis. But the human aspect is totally removed from it. It's like... Well, as long as these robots are going from, you know, A to B, who cares, right? They're not, they're not people. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's about the product, too. Like, it's about the outcome, not about the process of getting there. So, okay, we're fine because the laundry got cleaned, except that we, yeah, okay, the laundry's clean. But what about all the stuff before that, all the people who have to survive? Like, it's it's not just about that end product that comes out of the factory at the end from all us, you know, robots working away. Okay, so it gets even better, though. You guys are going to love this part. So, about four. It always does. I know. About 480 people are expected to lose their hospital laundry jobs across the province, but presumably some of those people could be hired by whichever private provider gets that contract. This is not the article. This is me saying, so in other words, you can fire me from my unionized job with good pay and benefits that I have negotiated hard for over the last however long. And now I can put my resume into a new private company that's going to pay me a lot less with no benefits. Okay. Problem solved. Never mind. Let's go back to work, guys. Yeah, everything's great. It, the, it, the nap, it's really the natural order of things. Also, presumably, comma, some. <laughs> presumably, <Come on>. some. <laughs> when told that my knee surgery was supposed to be starting right away, about the time I was chatting with her in the building behind her, there should be a comma in there somewhere, um, Pavez asked why my surgery was canceled. I told her it was because of the wildcat strike. She lied. Um, Exactly, she said. The strike is to show Premier Jason Kenney that we are essential. We matter and we are important. And it's important to remember that we are not just AUPE members. We are taxpayers and we are Albertans also, said Pavez, who was on a day off. So also not striking, apparently. (laughs) Taxpayers. I just vomit, vomit, vomit. Yeah, yeah. I think we've talked about this before, Roberta, but... 
Just say citizens. I know. Taxpayers is the grossest neoliberal reframing that we're stuck with, and it's so gross. Like, yeah, I'm a taxpayer, but I'm much more than a taxpayer, so... And what does that mean for people who are homeless or who um, are under the tax cutoff? Like, they don't pay taxes. Does that mean they're not citizens? Like, it's just so revolting, that language. So we're, do, we're here doing this wildcat strike to tell the government that we're not going to take, any, take it anymore. Um, they're trying to privatize health care with all the cuts that Kenny has made. It doesn't just affect us and our wages. It's basically about Albertans. The problem with that statement is that there have not been cuts in health care. <laughs> the government is spending more money than ever on health care, and without changes, the increases will make the system unsustainable. Uh, that is packed full of a whole bunch of assumptions, that paragraph. That's, yeah, she's just mainlining ideology. Yeah, but when she talks about changes, she's talking about cuts. Like, it's like, it's because you haven't implemented the cuts yet that there hasn't been cuts. Like, that's... Well, and, and it's also a lie anyway, because as long <laughs> as you are not increasing funding, given it's... inflation, you are cutting. And our population's going mm-hmm. up, that's a cut also if you're not increasing yeah. spending. So, I mean, it's all such a big lie in here that's just that same rhetoric we hear over and over with no nuance to it at all. Like, you might say there have been no cuts in healthcare, but if we scratch even slightly into that, it's... You know, it bleeds gross. Yeah, if there are no cuts in healthcare, why are they cutting eleven thousand jobs? <laughs> like, what, like, and this government in Alberta does this all the fucking time in education and healthcare. It's like, what do you mean? We haven't cut anything. And first of all, uh, you know, I covered the education beat at the Mass and that news. And that is an outright lie. They did cut education funding while saying that they were freezing the budget, which is also a cut, but even that was a lie. (laughs) Okay, this is probably my favorite paragraph of the whole thing. So, um, there have been some pretty clumsy restructuring moves made by Health Minister Tyler Shandro that have infuriated doctors. Had some of those proposed changes not been walked back by Shandro, they would have negatively affected patient care, particularly in rural Alberta. Clumsy is a fantastic word for the disaster zone of health services right now. And also, now uh, patient care is not being negatively affected. So, good work, Shandro. <laughs> Why, however... Well, he, will, he will be waving his hand uh, watching us drown. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course. He'll be standing in my driveway watching me drown. But I got the quote. <laughs> I, I got the reference there, but also... You did get the reference. <laughs> I, I figured. I mean, you're, I'm old. you're a giant, so. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> Okay, um, this is also great. So why, however, does laundry have to be done in hospital by public employees? Clearly, it doesn't have to. Laboratory services are expected to be the next area where about 2,000 public employees are expected to, quote, transition into private delivery of that essential service. I'm sure some husky employees facing layoffs would eagerly trade places with those lab workers who will simply see a change in whose signature is on their paychecks. Yeah, so will husky workers when we have a Green New Deal. Well, and also, like, this assumption that, first of all, everybody in the public sector is going to immediately transition to the private sector is a lie. They're not all going to get jobs in the private sector. And also to say that only change is going to be the signature on their paycheck is 
very highly underestimating the value of unions and public sector mm-hmm. employment, which offers incredibly good pay and uh, benefits, which is the whole point of offering it through government. Also, it's more efficient to offer it that way because we don't have profits to deal with. But like, what the hell? It's not just a change in signature. It's a legitimate change in how people's lives are organized and how they work for a living. It's just, it's infuriating. Yeah. And I mean, I think she's like structuring her entire argument over like, "Eh, there's no difference. Like the world that she lives in, there is nothing between the public sector and, and the private. And it just, it's patently false everything's just a commodity including people yeah exactly i i, I think this next paragraph is better. yeah it's a pretty great one because now she's really telling us where the blame should fall so sick okay <laughs> so no doubt union officials will be sad to see more union dues disappear but all Albertans have been making do with less not just during the covid19 pandemic but for the past five years wonder why she makes oh, really? five years that's interesting oh really all, all Albertans? Yeah, I like oil, Like oil and gas CEOs, they're making do with less? <laughs> <laughs> like, I guess less employees. Sure, 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 sure. Less payroll budget. The most frustrating thing for me about this paragraph is that it's that um, trope that the UCP uses of connecting the NDP or whoever else to union bosses. This idea of like these high-level union bosses that are apparently controlling everything. And this is really fascinating to me in this case, especially because it's actually a wildcat strike that was done against, or not against, the uh, the vote of the union member or leadership. But it wasn't the union leaders that sparked this this protest. It was the workers themselves. So, I mean, this this trope to pull it back to being the blame of union officials is just it's hilarious to me. It's also like, and, and I've made this argument in various outlets. The difference between union bosses who aren't their bosses, they're right. Gil McGowan is the president of the Alberta Federation of Labor. Guy Smith is the president of AUP. Jason Schilling is the president of the ATA. Is that unlike actual bosses, they're subject to democratic accountability. If you don't like the way McGowan or Schilling or Smith are doing their job, get involved with the union and vote, vote them out, organize against them. Uh, you can't do that in a workplace until after the revolution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or we buy up all the stocks or something like that. And I don't know, whatever. But yes, absolutely. Unions are democratic, where most workplaces are not. It's sort of the problem. Okay, we're almost done this garbage, so let's yes. get through it. Yeah, and we got, we got another one coming up that I think your expertise would be very valuable on. So let's okay. let's get through this one, and then we'll leave now. Okay, so outside the hospital Monday, Marianne Martins, a licensed practical nurse, had a sign strapped to her front that says, Fair Deal Now. We haven't seen a wage increase over three years, she complained. Has anyone in Alberta? I haven't had one in 11 years. It should be in a union. <laughs> the the failing junior oil and gas companies who are taking loans from our pension fund and paying dividends to their shareholders with it um, have certainly seen a wage increase in the past three years. Absolutely. The, the premiers had a raise, she says. Wrong again. Last year, Premier Jason Kenney took a 10% wage cut. MLAs saw their salaries cut by 5%. 
If you include the Jim Prentice era rollback, it's 15% and 10% respectively. Political staff took a 7% cut. This is always this again, not reading the article now. This is my commentary. This is one of my favorite um, strategies that politicians and um, owners use as a way to try and force the rest of us into taking uh, cuts, which is saying, well, we'll take the the cut first and then you take the cut after us. But look, we're all sacrificing. We took a cut. But I'm sorry, but Jason Kenney's salary and his lifetime pension that he has does not compare to the minimum wage jobs that people are going to be making lower minimum wage if he has, if he has anything to say about it once they're working in these private companies like taking a 10% wage cut for Jason Kenny is nothing when his housing's covered all of it's covered and he has a, an amazing pension it's not comparable at all wait Roberta are you suggesting that you're not actually all in this together. <laughs> actually, I I would say we are all in this together, just not the all they mean. <laughs> okay, I'm finishing this thing because I don't want to read it anymore. Okay, so this yeah. illegal work action won't likely. Oh, sorry. This illegal work action won't likely help these workers gain much sympathy. If this were a perfect world, none of these upsetting changes would ever be needed. But clearly, the entire world is in a tough spot. At about 9 p.m. Monday night, the striking workers were ordered back to work uh, by the labor board. Here's hoping on Tuesday these workers follow the law. (laughs) (laughs) And I just vomited. (laughs) You go first, uh, UCP. UCP member. Leisha Corbella. Corbella. Yeah, Leisha Corbella is a post-media columnist, dot, 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 and UCP member. <laughs> it's it's very yeah. important to have and, that disclaimer at the bottom. And, and, at least and, they added and, it now, so we know. But. <laughs> oh, does that, does it say no. it? No, it doesn't <laughs> say kidding. it. They should. I, I really resent the fact that nowhere in Leisha's uh, really, really terrible column did she mention the fact that a wildcat strike is cool and good. And it's really a missed opportunity to to gain some traction with the young kids, which she should do because uh, she seems wildly out of touch for the rest of the call. <laughs> well, and her line about it's not going to attract much sympathy for the strike. Like, I'm sorry, and I know I'm on my in my own little Twitter bubble, but she's wrong. <laughs> there yeah. was a lot of sympathy, and people were very excited that this was finally happening. That people were going to get a chance to actually fight back Um, my my personal sense is if they could have held on one more day i think they would have had a lot of unions behind them on the lines it just takes a while for a lot of us to get mobilized Um, but i think corbella is exactly the opposite or she is exactly wrong in that line Mm -hmm. that in fact it did mobilize a lot of people and people were very excited to finally get a chance to fight back against this government so she should be worried that was a really bad piece. Yeah, uh, it can't get worse, right? Like, well, <laughs> there isn't there isn't a worse piece Lisha Corbello wrote this week, right? <laughs> about, <laughs> about about a certain uh, historical moment has been in discussion lately because the Bloc Québécois and NDP put forward a motion calling for an apology for Canada's military occupation of Quebec in the 1970s. 
which I'm sure Roberta um, has a lot to say about. I'm actually teaching a course on it right now. Yes. <laughs> but um, what, what I find interesting with that is you see all these you know, liberal blue check hacks um, <laughs> accusing Jagmeet Singh of having a pattern of, <laughs> of supporting <laughs> terrorism. I don't know if you saw that. I forget what idiot tweeted. It's, the, it's honestly like at a certain point, it's the same person. Like anyone who's yeah. in like partisan liberal Twitter is the same person. They feed off each other. For sure. It's in that, I mean, not that we're not in like a left wing echo chamber, but our echo chamber is better. Um, it's funnier, at least. It's at least smarter. Yeah. And funnier. It's smarter. It's funnier. We have more, more fun. morally just. We don't, <laughs> oh, Peshaw Marino. We don't care about moral justice or anything. Come on. Yeah, that that's a bourgeois. We're just more funny. <laughs> we are. I mean, they say the left can't mean, but I think it's really the center that can't mean. Oh, my God first interview Jagmeet Singh did when he was elected um, the leader of the NDP wasn't my first choice wasn't my second choice either but be that as it may um, he went on CBC um, and Terry Maluski uh, who no longer works at CBC was actually asked to stop tweeting unhinged conspiracy theories from his CBC account about sick extremism which he has this obsession with yeah demanded Jagmeet Singh disavow uh, Khalistani uh, separatism. That is the uh, Sikhs, I believe, in, uh, in, is in the Punjab region of India who are seeking a separate state from the um, Hindu-dominated and increasingly fascistic Indian state. And some of them have resorted to violence as oppressed people across the world tend to do. And Terry Maluski's number one question for Jagmeet Singh was, will you disavow? Yeah, it was, it was like somehow tied to the Air India bombings. And Malevsky was like a, like a dog with a bone. Like he, he yeah. lost his mind. It was insane. Right, because Khalistanis blew up a plane. Like Khalistani extremists. Not, they blew up. <laughs> not uh, every single uh, Khalistani. No. <laughs> well, uh, that was some impressive it, mobilization. <laughs> what was that a Canadian plane? Yeah, it was 1984. There was a it was an Air India flight, but it was uh, left from Vancouver, I think, um, maybe Toronto. And the most of the passengers on board were Canadians, so it became like a huge controversy in Canada when it happened um, because it was one of the last, I think, I want to say, or maybe one of one of the last like terrorism on an airplane sort of events that happened uh, between kind of the big moments in the 70s when it became a big deal and happened quite a bit. Not quite a bit, but more often. And then we had a big gap until 9-11. And so it was like, it was a huge deal because it was like 230 Canadians, I want to say, died on that flight. So I think we've set the scene well for the piece. This is why people are screeching about the War Measures Act now. And whether putting Canada's province under military occupation and stripping everyone's rights because of some terrorist attacks was a good thing. And this, of course, has implications. On that note, uh, Roberta, did you want to read this one or do you want one of us? One of you go ahead and do this one. Bloc Québécois leader Yves-Francois Blanchet 
wants Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to make a formal apology for his father invoking the War Measures Act 50 years ago this month. Pierre Trudeau did many things wrong during his 15-year tenure as Prime Minister from 1968 to 1984, with just a brief time in opposition. But suspending civil liberties for a short period of time to deal with murderous terrorists wasn't one of them. So I would argue that suspending civil liberties for an entire province as a reaction to armed resistance, you know, that's deeply rooted in a history of a uh, somewhat colonial relationship between English and French Canada was indeed one. Yeah. Well, and also, just as a quick fact check on, on Corbella here, the War Measures Act was actually invoked before anybody was murdered. Um, in fact, Pierre Laporte was murdered in response to the invocation of the War Measures Act, not the other way around. Oh. So um, you could say <laughs> nice. that it was invoked in response to kidnappings. And bombings, um, which had, I suppose, killed uh, one person um, as an accidental death. That's, I guess, could be included in that murderous category. But my guess is she's referring to Pierre Laporte, who doesn't die until after the War Measures Act is invoked. So there actually was no good reason to, to implement the, the War Measures Act. And in fact, the RCMP said that at the time. They said, we don't want this. We don't need it. <laughs> and on top of that, like when she says that Trudeau did many things wrong. And she's talking about the National Energy Program. That's the one thing he did wrong, according to her. Which, so. which apparently conservatives now want. Well, yeah, because that's actually a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, because times are Anyway, that's a whole other issue. But but also, and this is a tangent, but the War Measures Act, that took place in 72? 70. October 1970. Oh, right. Okay, because that's interesting, because the the fact that the FLQ were kidnapping these people and didn't necessarily intend to kill them, context is needed to understand (laughs) what was going on in Quebec at the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is very true <laughs> it's, it's... all right we're off to a good start i agree here. with her <laughs> yeah like okay uh Pierre trudeau made a lot of mistakes and that we need context she's Great. like the queen of like that's true but you're still wrong <laughs> but <laughs> yeah of like almost yeah, getting yeah. It. throughout the 1960s the front deliberation du quebec conducted more than 900 bombings in During a single day in 1963, for instance, the Montreal train station, the Federal Tax Building, and the CN Rail Line were all bombed. Wilfred O'Neill, an evening security guard at the Canadian Forces Recruiting Center, was killed in an explosion that same year. Radio stations in Canada Post were targeted. On February 13, 1969, the Montreal Stock Exchange was bombed, injuring 27 people. The FLQ was a radical separatist group that robbed banks to finance its agenda and stole explosives from construction sites to make bombs. That is very fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say. And that is, of course, a direct quote from Lucia. The cool part? <laughs> yeah, she did say that. Yeah, she really <laughs> loves the robbing banks and explosives part. Yeah. The police infiltrated the group, and dozens of those involved in these acts of violence were jailed. In March 1970, Jacques Lento, Lento. I, I, Lento. Yeah. In March 1970, uh, insert name, was charged with the foiled <laughs> kidnapping of an Israeli diplomat, but he was released on bail. 
again, solidarity between national liberation movements um, across the world is very cool. To get. Seven months later, on October 5th, 1970, Lang Tot joined an armed crew who kidnapped James Cross, the British Trade Commissioner in Montreal. Five days later, Quebec's Deputy Premier, Pierre Laporte, was kidnapped from his front yard while he was playing with his children. It would be their last memory of their father. The FLQ wanted to trade its hostages for 23 FLQ members who were jailed and demanded that a long manifesto be broadcast to the public. Some news outlets did publish and broadcast the manifesto, but Trudeau remained firm that he would not negotiate with terrorists, which, as we will see... Worked um, out fine. Worked out great. Yeah. Um, but, um, Roberta, I think uh, maybe we could use some historical context here on um, the FLQ's campaign of kidnappings and bombings. Why, why were they doing it? Because you get the impression from this column that they're just having a good time. Yeah, it just but. seemed like a fun thing to do in the seventies, I guess. I yeah. don't know. That's what people did. It was for the lulls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was for the <laughs> They were posting. They were posting <laughs> memes. <laughs> <laughs> they were just looking for likes. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, I won't go into the whole long history of, of Quebec concerns within Canada, but um, just to say that, you know, since Europeans arrived on the shores of what is now Canada, um, there's been a long time conflict between the French and the English. Um, basically, the English defeated the French, uh, but allowed the French to maintain their language and their culture, which in reality meant their Catholic faith within this new weird federation that becomes Canada. So instead of actively assimilating or forcing the French to become English, they allow them to, the British allow them to keep kind of their own customs within this province of Quebec. Over the years, there's tons of controversies. Um, the conscription crisis in World War One is a really good example, where the Quebecois were like, why the hell should we go fight for Britain? We hate Britain. Screw you. You can't make us go. And a big deal happened. Then World War Two, they had to try and prevent that from happening. And then by the post-war period, the French in Quebec were going through what we now call the Quiet Revolution which was really an, an effort to overthrow the control of the province by the Catholic Church in particular, and then Union Nationale, which was kind of the conservative political wing of the Catholic Church and the kind of business class in Quebec. Um, it was a very regressive political system there. Um, they were very harsh on strikes, for instance, um, and very, very conservative. Were they pro-Nazi? Um, yes. So they, I mean, right. not. Pro, I wouldn't say pro-Nazi, but they definitely had a lot of fascist, um, um, I was going to say enthusiasm, but that's <laughs> a very weird way of putting that. But, um, you know, lots of fascist organizations emerge in Quebec at this time connected to the the party and to the Catholic Church in lots of ways. They were more anti-communist. Then they were fascist, but right. that like, in those days that is, was your choice was you either like right. the Nazis or the communists, I guess. So. And, and, and you see that in, uh, of course, Ukraine, the Banderites. Hundred percent, same we, issue. We won't we won't go down. That's there. a different rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, but it also reminds me of social credit in Alberta, yes. which was also deeply um, right wing and anti democratic and sympathetic towards Hitler and. 
um, his goals. Absolutely. I mean, we could do a but, whole episode just talking yeah. about fascism versus communism and why it becomes so popular as a result. But basically, the idea is in the 50s, there was a very, very conservative, very regressive government in Quebec. And most of the businesses were owned by English speakers, either within Quebec or outside. So basically, you had like a working class that was poor and French. And then you had the owners that were wealthy and English. And so by the 1960s, um, a bunch of different groups of people start fighting against this colonial relationship as they start to define it. And some join a political party. Party? <laughs> I just went to the French there. Some join a political party, the Parti Québécois, which we still know about. Um, and then others join um, different organizations to try and fight differently. So some are trying to do it through the political system. And then some join these organizations like the FLQ that try and um, achieve power for the French within Quebec through a different tactic. So in their case, it was much more violent and confrontational. Um, the FLQ is fascinating. Their manifesto is well worth a read, and you should link it in the show notes uh, for this, because it is an excellent example of the sort of decolonial Marxist ideology of the time. It is incredibly Marxist. It is very much about a working class revolution, and it's very much about connecting with other liberation movements around the world, in Latin America, in Africa. Um, and they're really defining themselves in Quebec as a colony of English Canada. Um, so it's fascinating to read. And they start bombing, um, they use bombings primarily, and they start bombing all of those things you listed from that article. Those are all representations of English society or English Canada. So the post office is Canada Post, CBC is the Canadian Broadcasting Center. Um, they go to the stock exchange, which is where the economy is controlled, the capitalist economy is being controlled by the English. Um, they kidnap James Cross, who's the British Trade Commissioner, because he represents that British connection. And Pierre Laporte was the deputy prime minister, or premier, they call them there, um, but he was also the labor minister. And so for them, it was he represented um, the sort of dominance of English um business over the working class in Quebec. So they were very targeted in what they were doing, but their goal was to um, kind of overthrow the colonial system to benefit the French using these more assertive and aggressive tactics. In Montreal, uh, it was hard to get a job if you were Francophone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality was in that time that the French speakers were very much limited to kind of low wage, unskilled labor, because anything where you would have to communicate outside of Quebec um, required English. So you couldn't get a government job if you didn't speak English, like a federal government job. You couldn't get a provincial government job unless you spoke English. You couldn't get a job in many of the businesses because they had relationships outside of Quebec and would have had to speak English. So it was very much a fractured society that way. And, and um, you know, the French were very much treated as, or at least felt as, second-class citizens within this state. So when the, when the Quiet Revolution happens, we start to see a change at the government level as well to try and fix some of this. So, for example, you know, the provincial government nationalizes Hydro-Quebec. The main reason they did it was to try and create a space for French speakers within middle management jobs and within kind of the upper echelons of that, that industry. So they basically took it over and then prioritized French speakers. Um, they also passed a bunch of 
language laws, making um, French uh, much more widespread, even in Montreal. And they pushed for things like bilingualism across the country so that they could get federal government jobs if you spoke French, that kind of thing. I mean, none of this has been resolved, I should say. These same fights are still happening. There's still debates about bilingualism, for instance, and work availability. And if you talk to Quebecers, they will say they all have to know English, and most of us don't know French. So none of this has been solved, but basically people are getting really pissed about it. And some of them got really mad and started blowing some shit up. Hell yeah. To summarize. <laughs> yeah. So all this right. is the context that Corbella also includes in her column. Right. All that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. Within days of Laporte's kidnapping, 12,500 troops were on the streets of Quebec, and more still were in Ottawa. CBC journalist Tim Ralph challenged Trudeau on camera, which led to his famous quote, well, just watch me, after he asked how far he would go. Um... There's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns, <laughs> continued Trudeau. All I can say is go on and bleed, but it is important to keep law and order in society than to be worried about weakening people. That's some fucking RoboCop shit. Yeah, it really, it's super <laughs> lame. Um, you know, I'm totally fine with seeing people with guns, but if someone has a helmet around me, I am not... <laughs> I will not accept yeah. that. The helmet's the line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I actually, I, I, I agree with that. I actually find um, that quote so funny. Like, it's so boss in some ways. Like, I wish somebody would stand up now and just be like, screw all you bleeding heart liberals. Like, we just got to fucking do some shit sometimes. But, I mean, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, like, suck no. it up and deal with the tanks in your streets. But <laughs> yeah. I just, there's something about just being willing to be like, just watch me. There's just something about it that's so boss, but also for a horrible reason. So yeah. boo Trudeau, but <laughs> somebody else needs to stand up and say something like that. Blanchet, who is clearly trying to whip up anti-government fervor in Quebec for his own political benefit, needs to recall that Quebec's premier at the time, Robert Bourassa, Bourassa. Montreal's powerful, powerful Mayor Jean Drapeau, Ask the federal government to use the war measures. Oh, well. Can we just stop for uh, a second and appreciate that Corbella's upset that somebody is trying to rile up a province against the federal <laughs> government? Like, can we just not, we have to acknowledge the, the hypocrisy there also. Like, screw the Quebecers for trying yeah. to rile the, each other up, but what the hell? Well, and, and it reminds me of the argument uh, people made uh, in support of the first Gulf War that, well, the Saudis were asking us to be there. It's like, yeah, that's because. They're there because you put them there. Yeah. Yeah. It's And also, like, which... Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is like a... Well, Quebecers were, were asking for it, so I don't know why Quebecers are upset about it now. And it's like, which Quebecers? Like, which ones yeah, are you exactly. asking? exactly. Like, they weren't all asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know there are people who didn't vote for Mayor Montreal. Also, in the House of Commons, the motion to suspend the civil liberties of Quebecers which would be the only time that would be done during peacetime in Canada, was passed by a vote of not 190 to 16. Okay, cool. Who cares? Yeah. No, well, you know, it was 190 to 16, so that means it's good. 
It's good because yeah. people voted and it. And no parliaments ever made the wrong choice <laughs> and then had to look back and go, oops, we shouldn't have voted that way. But I would like to point out that two of those 16 votes against the War Measures Act, the only two that were not Quebec politicians, were Tommy Douglas and David Lewis, who took a nice. beating when they were willing to stand up and vote against it. And then afterwards mm-hmm. were very much praised for being a moral compass in a mess of a mess. And um, so I think they deserve some credit for, for being willing to stand up in the house and take the shit that they took. Mm-hmm. Which leads me nicely into the next paragraph where she quotes Tommy Douglas saying that PET was using a sledgehammer to crack a peanut. Now Corbella says, who apparently loves truth, <laughs> uh, he, was, he was quick on his feet. This criticism doesn't take the facts into account. First, peanuts don't make bombs <laughs> and don't take hostages and don't assassinate our prisoners. Yeah, citations and needed. as for the sledgehammer, it was the only tool at our disposal. You could have opened a dialogue with the people, but I guess you just don't negotiate yeah. with terrorists. So there was more tools at your disposal. You just didn't want to use them. Yeah, you could hear the separatists out, which, from my understanding, Trudeau ultimately did to some extent by making bilingualism the official policy countrywide. But again, why do that when you can just send out tanks and show how tough you are? Yeah. Critics argue that's incorrect, that the criminal code provided all the tools Trudeau needed to call the crisis. (laughs) But if that's true, why did the FLQ violence last more than a decade? Yeah, (laughs) it's funny how things escalate when um, you- Escalate them? A few hours after the War Measures Act came in on October 16th, 497 people were arrested and as many as 10,000 homes were searched without warrants. Ultimately, just 62 people were charged and 32 were not granted bail. On October 1970, the body of Lepore was found in the trunk of a car in an airport parking lot after FLQ members tipped off journalists. Some scholars and historians wonder if Lepore might have survived had the War Measures Act not been used. Hey, I think we're joined by uh, one of such scholars. (laughs) The French note left with his body said, faced with the arrogance of the federal government and of its lackey, Bourassa, faced with their obvious bad faith, the FLQ had decided to take action. Later, however, those responsible say Lepore accidentally after he was killed accidentally after he tried to escape yeah it's pretty um bad idea to try and escape your captors um who are involved in political struggle um against um the very establishment you represent the murder of laporte lost the group many followers and made it nearly impossible to call those from the group already behind bars political prisoners Many of those rounded up in the mass arrests may have been separatists, but there was no doubt they weren't terrorists. That was clearly heavy-handed. However, many of them dined out on the notoriety of being one of those swept up under the act for years, if not decades, in Quebec. Mistakes were made, but Trudeau was not wrong to invoke the War Measures Act. Um, <laughs> sounds like, that's a bit, that's a bit uh, Stalinist, would you say? It's also a big jump at the end there from being like, yeah, this stuff happened. Nah, it was fine. They got some free <laughs> like, lunches. It was just it's a fine. very, like, she ran yeah. out of words or what? 
she but, doesn't explain why he was wrong at all, other than just providing selected, cherry-picked little historical. Hey, mistakes anecdotes. were made. Okay, yeah. Marino. Maybe it's best if we just move on and don't dwell <laughs> on the details. Yeah. On Thursday, the opposition conservatives voted against the Bloc's motion, along with the Liberals. For us, the October crisis is first and foremost the death of the deputy premier of Quebec, Pierre Laporte, a guy who had been elected by the people of Quebec who had been killed by terrorists, said opposition House Leader Gerard Deltel prior to the vote. All about us. All about us. (laughs) Prime Minister Justin Trudeau agreed. Shocker. (sighs) Laporte was taken and assassinated by a terrorist cell, he said. Those are the events of the October crisis that we should remember. <laughs> yes, there will always be political debates about what happened. And let's remember the fact that a Quebec politician was taken and assassinated in an awful context. And we should remember his family and his service. No apology required. <laughs> end of column. That's very, the whole end there is very fascist. Yeah, like Trudeau Jr. mentions an awful context before saying, but we shouldn't talk about that because it will ruin my father's legacy that my entire brand. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't, like, I guess that's the consequence of an apology, but I I do think that there is an apology required, regardless of what side you're taking on this thing i mean this this really affected people's lives this isn't just a you know a walk in the park and a a paragraph in a history textbook this is this is something a little bit more yeah i mean i have i have so many thoughts about it in so many ways like one of the things i that really triggers me a lot is is this word terrorism that we throw Mm. around because i think one of the things we have to acknowledge is that terrorism is defined by by particular people for a particular reason and so at one point something might be considered terrorism and from another perspective it's not and the example i always use for my students because they always look at me like i'm insane when i say that like terrorists are terrorists is the american revolutionaries in the late 1700s According to the British, they were terrorists. But if you tell an American that their fighters for independence were terrorists, they would lose their shit. So, you know, terrorists are people who use fear to try and achieve a political goal. But the definition of that really depends on who's setting it out. Um, Exactly. I mean, it's a cliche, but one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. It's funny to me now for somebody to look back and be like, yeah, that was great. We made the right decision there. Now, I'm not saying Trudeau should apologize for what his dad did. I find these apologies to be so stupid most of the time because they go and apologize for shit and then just do the same thing anyway. <laughs> like they apologize for like starving indigenous peoples on the plains during the, you know, the the settlement of the West and then they won't fix drinking water on reserves now. So like apologize all you want. It doesn't really mean anything. But at the same time to say like, oh, there's nothing to apologize for is a little bit rich, I think. Like I the apology wouldn't change anything, but to say there's nothing to apologize for might be pushing it a little bit there. Yeah. 
But it's true, a lot of these apologies are hollow and they're used to justify uh, further repression. Like, uh, it reminds me of when uh, Justin Trudeau apologized for not letting Canadian Jews into uh, Canada during the Second World War, which, you know, as a Jewish person, I uh, appreciate it. But then he goes on and is like, this is why we stand against the hate-filled BDS movement against Israel. And it's like, that is absolutely disgusting. And I would rather you not have said anything. And um, so, yeah, I mean, again, you know, people, you know, again, another cliche that's obviously true in this place is talk is cheap. But an apology, I think, is a good starting point as long as it's sincere and it's not being used um, to, you know, promote a shallow political agenda. Well, just, yeah, just before we wrap up, I mean, the one reason I think an apology would be great on this one is because uh, the cost of the apology is Trudeau's pride in his father and his father's legacy. And I think that that would be a huge step in the right direction for uh, Justin and and the country. I mean, I, I think when there's actually like a, if there's an actual cost to the apology, which I mean, will never come, like we're never going to get it. I, I think it would show a level of integrity that I don't think I've ever seen from Mr. Justin Trudeau. And, and that that's just a me thing. And so I've, I've now made this column about me, just like Leisha made the last <laughs> two about her. Uh, <laughs> Good way to wrap that back around again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Now, quickly, we've done two columns by the same author, which I don't think we've done before. Which one, Roberta, as our guest, which one do you think is worse? Ooh, uh, ooh, that's hard because historically, as a historian, the October crisis article is dreadful from my perspective, but I think the worst one is the Wildcats just because of how much it's pushing one narrative that's all a lie. And just the utter disdain for working people yeah. that, that, that comes out in that column. Whereas the one we just read, it, it's junk history. Yeah. It just doesn't say much, whereas the other one's actually offensive. Yeah, I uh, I find I find that that Wildcat Strike column specifically offensive, just because I mean dealing with hospital stuff right now, um, but also I, I think it has the potential to do more damage down the line. Like if if someone reads that and is easily influenced, I mean it can cause some serious damage to discourse around labor in Alberta. I, I think, you know, things are things are already a little interesting. Sometimes I hear some of the debates going on in Alberta <laughs> and I'm like, that's that's actually up for discussion. That's wild. I, I say that with Doug Ford as the premier of Ontario. But uh, <laughs> like it has the potential to make a lot of people's lives worse. And, and so I think we should we should yell about the wildcat strike column more. Yeah. And because also that like. Her piece on the FLQ crisis, obviously, as we've established, is utter trash. Um, but at the same time, it's not really, I mean, there isn't that civil strife in Quebec right now that there was mm -hmm. then, right? And, you know, of course, a major reason for that is the feds finally, once, you know, the Parti Quebecois came to power, um, in the Bloc Québécois uh, became the official opposition at one point for like, okay, we're going to take your concerns seriously. And so it's kind of 
a moot point at this point um, compared with, um, you know, strikes and walkouts, which we're only going to see more of um, in the future, I hope. Marino, do you want to weigh in on uh, which column you think is worse? I'm not as worried about, like, government overreach as in the sort of, like, illustrated in the October crisis with the War Measures Act as I am about strike stuff and labor issues. I think that's more pertinent in today's Canada, and maybe that's just my privilege speaking. But I will say the War Measures Act being invoked again is not a major concern yet. But they're bullshit. (laughs) AHS is worth. But also, if Justin Trudeau invokes the Word Measures Act to uh, send tanks to Alberta, uh, he'll have (laughs) The War Measures Act doesn't exist anymore, just so you all know. We got rid of it after this. Yeah, that was part of the the inquiry. So it's now the Emergency Measures Act, I think it's called. Oh, okay. They did invoke it with COVID. But the difference is is that the Emergency Measures Act is much more restrained and restricted in what it does. Just one last thing before you go, because I know it's been a very busy (laughs) podcasting morning for you. We always, you know, because we talk about these awful, awful columns um, on, on the show, right? It's what we do. But we like to end every episode, maybe on a positive note, talk about something good you've read or something good that you may have written that you want people to read. So, Roberta, um, What's up? Sure. So first, thanks for having me. This was great. It was super fun. Um, I love being able to talk about all this stuff to people who actually want to hear about it. Um, so yay. Um, okay. In terms of reading, I if anybody's listened to me on other podcasts, you will know I'm going to recommend a book that you all have to read because I cannot stop recommending it and I will s- shut up about it soon maybe. Um, but it's called The People's Republic of Walmart. Um, you all have to read it. It's about how economic planning is possible and that our big corporations like Amazon and Walmart are already doing it um, and they can show us a way to do it in a better way where it's not about profits and it's for the people. Um, It's an excellent read. Really love it. And then um, I wrote a piece for Jacobin last week um, on the history of the CCF and basically the argument is that the CCF was very radical um, and came out of its uh, particular material environment to advocate for the overthrow of capitalism Um, and that it would be good to revitalize some of that tradition and that history. Um, So read that. And then the last one I was going to mention, but Jeremy will probably mention it himself, is the piece Jeremy wrote this week for uh, Press Progress. Was it Press Progress? Uh, Passage. Oh, for Passage on the strikes? Yeah, my parents always get um, Press Progress and Progress Alberta mixed up. Uh, And then with Passage thrown into the mix, which left... Yeah. yeah. Well, Jeremy's keys. piece, wherever the hell it was, <laughs> on the Wildcat Strikes on Monday was excellent. Um, and you should all read that. Thank you so much, Roberta. Um, all right, Eric. Yes. Uh, Marino. What I did this week was I got 880 moons in Mario Odyssey. Hell yeah. I don't know what that means. <laughs> moons, man. I, like, I, I call <laughs> It, it, it was fun. Uh, as readers or li- sorry, as listeners may know, I do read a lot for work and not necessarily things I elect to read, uh, but uh, that will soon change. And I am going to implement a more stringent sort of like reading list. That Walmart book I've heard of before. I will probably add that. Shock Doctrine's a good pick. 
uh, actually reading uh, whatchamacallit manufacturing consent yeah actually reading it not just taking it out from the library and having it rest on my nightstand. It makes you feel weeks. smarter if it's there, though. Uh, Marino, if, yeah, if I can make a suggestion... I'm going to stop talking. Um, I think you should read Passage next week, because I heard that a uh, young upstart... Maybe not so young. Young upstart might be having a column in there. Well, well, well by the time this episode airs, it probably will. Oh, no, I'm going to edit this really fast so I can time it properly. I'm talking about nice. my column. My column, and it's going to be good, and it's going to kind of going to be a shithead take but i hope it <laughs> i hope it lands well at this point i don't here's helping so a piece i read uh recently um in the nation uh by a fellow named greg shupak who i believe also does some work for uh fairness and accuracy in reporting one of the few media watchdogs out there that isn't uh garbage and it is the weapons industry doesn't care who's president in the nation he goes through military contractors um, donations uh, this election season to both the Republicans and Democrats, considering they both parties are in bed with the military industrial complex. It's good. I mean, I find sometimes the best journalism is something that tells you that, you know, but don't have like the the you know the facts and the uh, sort of groundwork to justify it and so that's a good read i'll link to it uh thank you so much uh for listening to this episode i think it's one of our best thank you roberta again for joining us and uh you're welcome on the show literally anytime (laughs) um all right i'm out uh stay tuned um later this week for our bonus episode if you want to give us three bucks yeah yeah and and actually there's a there's a good reading suggestion uh that will go along with that bonus episode uh read the uh (laughs) the letter in response to glenn greenwald resigning from the intercept i've never seen a a news organization go so hard after one of their former employees it is absolutely nuts well he actually he's a a co-founder sorry that's why it's such a big deal um but anyways, we'll talk about it, but he's been on a uh, weird trajectory over the last few years, and so it's not that surprising. Um, but uh, yes, I, w- I wish the New York Times had done a Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss <laughs> did her. I'm quitting. I'm being stifled because editors want to edit me instead of uh, just saying nothing. But anyways, uh, love you, Roberta. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for I having me. To- Eric and Marino, and uh, catch you soon. Bye. 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 That was so good. <laughs>